1: No purchase necessary. Void, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening
0: and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gifts of Freedom, coming to you over Radio. Tonight, our subject is HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities that were started prior to the Civil War. And we'll probably go into some uh, discussion on black educators as well. Uh, Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that these shows are archived and available to you on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. I would also suggest to you that you send a friend request to our executive producer, Leslie Gist, on Facebook. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y. Yes, GIST. And um I would also remind you again that she has a website called www.buriedhistory buriedblackhistory.com. So HBCUs prior to the Civil War joining me in this discussion is Professor Linda Mizell. Good evening, Professor. Okay, perhaps she has not joined us as yet. And uh, I'm sure she'll be
1: queuing in here
0: any moment. Again, we're taking up a discussion of Historically black colleges and universities started by African Americans, a few, approximately seven, that were started uh, prior to the Civil War. Um, Most were started by church organizations, the AME Church, uh, the American Baptist Churches of the USA. United Churches of Christ. And, uh, for example, the African Methodist had, through the efforts of Bishop Payne, undertaken the establishment of Union Seminary near Columbus, Ohio. And later on, it was uh, merged with Wilberforce in Ohio. Uh, Wilberforce was established in approximately 1856 or 1858, which makes it the 7th oldest HBCU. As we're waiting on our guest, I want you in the audience to check yourself to know if you know what is the oldest HBCU in these United States of America. The oldest HBCU, historically black college and university, in these United States. You know what that is. You can call it in, or you can send me an email, and you can send that at Preston at com. You, should, uh, you can also uh, contact our executive producer Leslie Gist at Leslie at thegistoffreedom. dot com. The uh, some of the uh, HBCUs established after the Civil War. The uh, Zion Methodist Church uh established the Livingstone College in eighteen seventy nine and uh Okay. And uh again that was the Zion Methodist Church, Livingstone College. Colored Methodist Church, Open Lane College at Jackson, Tennessee in 1882. <clears throat> Excuse me there. I want to get over to uh, Miss Gibbs' page uh, to talk about an early educator by the name of Fanny Jackson Coppin, C-L-P-P-I-N. And if anyone out there knows if um, Coppin State College was named for her. Uh, Coppin State, uh, which is in the Maryland area. Baltimore, Maryland, I believe. And uh she has an autobiography uh, that she wrote about 1913, and you can view that online at docsouth.unc.edu dot dot backslash N-E-H backslash Jackson C as in Charles backslash Jackson and uh, a copy of her book is online and available for you to uh to read. And uh, excuse me here, I'm trying to find a little bit here so that I can read you a portion of it, of her work. And here we go. The book is entitled Reminiscent. School Life and Hints on Teaching by Fanny Jackson Coffin, copyrighted in 1913 by Philadelphia, PA. There are some points in my life which some forlorn and shipwrecked brothers saying may take heart again. We used to call our grandmother Mammy. And one of my earliest recollections, I must have been about three years old, is I was sent to keep my Mammy company. It was in a little one-room cabin. We used to go up a ladder to the loft where we slept. Mammy used to make a long prayer every night before going to bed. But not one word of all she said I remember, except the one word offspring. She would ask God to bless her offspring. This word remained with me for. I wondered what offspring meant. Mammy had six children three boys and three girls. One of these, Lucy, was my mother. Another one of them, Sarah, was purchased by my grandfather. Who first saved money and bought himself, then four of his children. Sarah went to work at $6 a month, saved $125 and bought little Francis and then taken a great liking to her. Okay, let me uh, check something here. Okay, I believe my uh, guest has now joined me, Professor Linda Misele. Good evening, Professor.
1: Good evening. How are you?
0: I am so good. I am great. And uh, you're here to talk to us about uh, historically black colleges and universities.
1: Yes, and in particular about Fannie Jackson Coppin. I heard you just reading from her memoir.
0: Yeah, I was just reading that. Tell our audience a little bit more about Fannie. Uh, Fanny.
1: Okay. Um sure. Jacks, uh, Jackson and um if you don't mind, let me back up a little bit and say a little bit about um the HBCUs. Um,
0: sure.
1: um that uh HBC there are um over a hundred, I think it's a hundred and six schools that are designated as as historically black colleges and universities. And um all but three of those schools were founded after the Civil War, and there are three things that are required for a school to be designated as an HBCU. First, it has to have been founded before 1964. Okay. Uh, second, it has to uh, to to have as, as its primary mission um, educating African Americans. Okay. And third, it has to be either accredited. Or uh, making good progress toward accreditation, so those are the three things. So there are schools that are predominantly black that serve a predominantly black uh, student population, but are not designated as HBCUs because of those, you know, because of those three criteria. Very,
0: okay.
1: Um, uh, now the three HBCUs, um, the schools that, that fall, you know, under that designation that were founded before the Civil War, uh, there are only three of them. Um, Cheney State University of Pennsylvania, uh, Lincoln University, also in Pennsylvania, and Wilberforce University. Um, And I would actually argue, and I hope the Cheney folks won't hate me for this, okay? (laughs) But I would actually argue uh, against some of the claims that um, that Cheney was was the first uh, of the historically black colleges and universities. It in fact was the it uh, it it is the oldest. Black institution of higher learning in the United States because it had its roots in 1937, but it didn't actually become a college until um, until the 20th century. Uh, but it is the oldest African American um, uh, institution of higher learning in the country because of its founding in 1837 as the Institute of Colored Youth, Institute uh, for Colored Youth, and um, Fannie Jackson Copping interestingly enough was born at the same time as that institution it was founded in eighteen thirty seven and that's the same year that she was born okay um she was born into slavery and um and worked um as a maid in her youth she was she was purchased out of her slavery her her freedom was purchased by her aunt, who served as a domestic servant and saved money for years in order to buy her freedom. And, for, and that's one of the reasons that Fannie Jackson Coppin throughout her entire life has had a tremendous respect for working people. Okay? And she made that part and parcel of the way she taught, of the, uh, of the way she outreached to the community, and everything that she did. She never forgot uh, the, the, uh, the dignity and the integrity and the importance uh, of, of working people like the aunt that had purchased her freedom. And in order to really understand um, the, just the depth and magnitude of the work that Fannie Jackson did and the kind of person that she was, you really have to read what other people wrote about her that I really encourage uh, everybody to read her book, the one that you began reading, that's available online. It's, it's really short, okay, and so it's a short read. But you have to read other stuff, too, because she was so humble okay and so modest and talking about herself that you really don't get what an amazing woman that she was simply from just reading what she wrote about herself
0: and she attended an HBCU did she not Mobile force
1: no um no actually she did not uh when F- when Fannie Jackson Coppin um uh, went to 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 college uh, there were no HBCUs in existence okay um and, in fact, there were very few schools at all that would admit african Americans or would admit women and so because she was both an african American and a woman, there was only one place that she could go that was oberlin uh oberlin college um um which which you know throughout the 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 um um the 19th century and well into the 20th century is known for its you know its progressive viewpoint it was the uh, at the time that that she began school it was the only uh college in the United States that admitted African Americans and um and and women And but even then, as a woman, there were particular challenges that she faced there. She was the the second African-American woman in history to receive a bachelor's degree uh, at the time that she attended Oberlin uh men took the gentleman's course which was the same as you know as you know um a liberal arts um um baccalaureate degree uh, and it was the same course of study as was taught at Harvard at the time okay um uh, but that was for the men the women took the ladies course um, which was not as academically rigorous. and didn't involve the same kinds of, of um, you know, higher math, for instance. And she always had a heart for learning. And not only did she have a heart for learning for herself, she wanted to become well-educated because she had a heart for her people. That was her desire from the time that she was a child, to grow up and be a teacher and to teach other black people and um so she wanted she you know she loved greek and algebra and all of those things that went into that classical curriculum and so she really wanted to um to take the gentleman's course uh her teachers at the school were were concerned about her entering that course not because they didn't think she could do it they were you know they had every confidence in her academic ability but it was because of their concern um, of the reaction to the other students. Now, students who were enrolled in that program had to teach courses in the preparatory program um, well into you know, into the, the early 20th century, and this is especially true for the historically black schools. Uh, many of those schools had preparatory programs, and that was in response, um, particularly for the black schools, to the fact that most communities didn't have high schools that um that up until the 1930s that very few uh southern state very few uh southern states had um more than one or two black high schools in the entire state okay so most of the uh most of the historically black colleges had um uh what was essentially a high school program in them. okay mm-hmm. and this was similar to what happened at at Oberlin uh in the eighteen sixties that the students in the baccalaureate program also taught courses in the preparatory program, which was, was essentially high school. And they were afraid that, that um the the young white men in that program would reject Fanny because of her race um and um and her gender. Okay. And so they agreed to let her try teaching, okay. But if there were any complaints that they would discontinue the course. Well, not only, not only um, did they not reject her, uh, her class became so popular that they had to add a second section, and there was demand for even a third section, but her teachers were afraid that if she added another class that it would distract from her own work. And then on top of that, in addition to, you know, to doing her own work and teaching in this preparatory program, she had also opened a freedman school in the town. So she was, um, by the time she left college, she was already an accomplished teacher. One of the finest, her teachers considered her one of the finest teachers they had ever known.
0: Wow. Is Coppin State there in Maryland named for her?
1: It is named for her. She didn't have any uh, direct connection to it, but it was named in her honor.
0: Okay. Now, you mentioned of the 106, um, HBCUs and now in existence. Only three are still around that were established prior to the Civil War. I have a question. There were mm-hmm. four other schools uh, established prior to the Civil War. I'm thinking of Harris, Stowe in St. Louis, LaMondoyne in Tennessee, Virginia Union, and the University of the District of Columbia. What happened to those schools?
1: Um, well it's the uh, let me correct that a minute. What I what I said was that only three of the HBCUs were actually established before the Civil War. That the vast okay. majority out of those hundred and six, uh all but those three that I mentioned were established after the Civil War. Okay.
0: Well wasn't Harriet Harris Stowe here I'm in Kansas City, Missouri, and Harris Stowe is at St. Saint Louis. Was it not established in 1857?
1: Uh, I actually don't know the history of Harris though.
0: Okay. And I thought Lamone Owen in Tennessee, which could be a little shaky, was 1862, just about the time the Civil War was starting. Um, anyway, um, and do you know anything about the University of uh, the district of
1: columbia um um that school, there's um there are a, a few schools that were kind of grandfathered in to um uh, to the designation of, of historically black colleges and universities um that and uh, let me back up and, and say that that designation HBCU um, came about as a result of the Higher Education Act of of, um, of 1965, okay, and um, which is one of the reasons why the cutoff sort of was was 64, but um, but um, um, but DC and I think there's one and possibly two other schools that even though they didn't meet those exact criteria, that um, that there was an exception made uh, made for them primarily because of their mission. Okay, and I'm I'm pretty certain that the University of D.C. was one of those um, that were the exception.
0: Okay. Yeah, I thought it was started around 1850 or 1851. Uh, So uh, Cheney State, starting out as the Institute for Colored Youth, is Mm the oldest at 1837, or started in
1: 1837.
0: Right. Uh, Is there any more you can tell us about uh, Cheney State?
1: Uh, Yeah, and... and, and, and um and again for most of its history it was the Institute for Colored Youth. And um there's um there's some, some really interesting and important scholarship um uh, about the school and about Fannie Jackson Coffin. The foremost authority on Fannie Jackson Coffin and in the Institute for Colored Youth is an his- is an historian by the name of Linda Marie Perkins. Okay. Um uh and she in fact um um several decades ago wrote her dissertation on on her and and her work remains uh, the most authoritative work on uh, jacks on jackson uh, cotton okay uh but the institute for colored youth um was um was established um with the, the same mission as the you know as the the later HBCUs it was established in Philadelphia primarily um um to and I'm sorry not primarily exclusively <laughs> its exclusive focus was to educate African American children and i think it's an important to note that um that some of the you know some of the ways that that we hear African American children and families talked about now that we don't care about education, or we don't care about our children's education, that our children aren't interested in learning. Um, all of those things have kind of his. Have, this isn't the first time that folks have said that. You know, historically, those are the kinds of things that have been said about us. But also historically, there's been abundant evidence to the contrary, that in fact a number number of historians have noted that. Um, That no people, you know, express more faith in the power of education, and were willing to sacrifice more in order to attain education than African Americans. Uh, But in the, you know, in the um, the late 1700s and early 1800s, uh, the prevailing science pretty much said that African Americans were not capable of higher learning. Okay, that we were good at, you know, at some things that we could imitate. But uh, but the things that were considered to be the highest forms of intellectual um, activity, uh, namely higher math and, and poetry, for instance, were considered to be things that African Americans couldn't do. Okay, well, we know that's not true. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Banneker and Phyllis Wheatley. Were, um, were examples of both of those things in poetry and in mathematics. Uh, and so there were many white people who didn't believe that they had actually done, that Phyllis Wheatley had written her poems or that um, Benjamin Banneker had done his calculations uh, because it was believed that African Americans just weren't capable of that. And um in in fact both of, of those for Phyllis Wheatley's uh poet before her her poet, book of poetry was was published, uh a group of of Boston's 16 finest men okay, uh, had to come together and examine her and then uh, basically you know, attest to the fact that they believed that she had written it, and that became the preface for her book. So this is an environment in which the Institute for Colored Youth was born, and uh, and one of the goals of the Institute was to demonstrate that African-American children were capable of important intellectual work and um and so um it was act it was not established by African Americans. It was um it was was um was founded um um with a grant from a Quaker man by the name of Richard Humphreys. He bequeathed ten thousand dollars, which was a a tenth of his estate, which was a lot of money, you know, in the eighteen thirties. Um and um, he designated um, that sum of $10,000 uh, to establish a school for descendants of the African race, as he put it. Okay. And, um, and so the institution was founded and initially supported by, um, by the Quaker community, but with African-American students as its audience, okay, as its targeted audience. And um, and. Um, so by the time that Fannie Jackson Coppin came there, once she graduated from, from Oberlin, she went to to, um, to the Institute for Colored Youth as the principal of the of the women's department, okay? um, and eventually became the the principal of the whole school, which made her the first African American woman to be the head of um, of an educational institution in the United States. Okay? but before uh before she came there the school had actually become a school for for uh Philadelphia's black elite it was the you know it was the the wealthy black philadelphians um whose children went to school there and um and philadelphia in you know in the in the 1830s might have might be considered kind of the heart of of um of the free black north that they, there was a, a large free black population and a number of wealthy black families in, living in philadelphia okay. but when when she came one of the first things that she did once she took over as the head of the school and, and that was with the resistance of the overseers um, the quaker overseers of the school actually were resistant to the idea of, first of all the idea of women having too much education being too highly educated um and so this was a huge step for them to um to um to hire her as the the principal of the whole school the The former principal left to become an, an ambassador to haiti um and so they gave her the job not because they you know initially um were okay with hiring a woman to do it, but they realized that she was the best candidate that there was available they in fact um Uh, Said that she was much better qualified than the principal that she replaced. So one of the first things that she did when she um, became principal was abolish tuition payments so that poor children could go to the school too. And she was um, she was responding in part to the fact that again you know with Philadelphia sort of the you know the the capital of Free Black America at that point, because remember we're we're you know still in slavery at that point. Um, more and more African Americans were coming from the South. Uh, many of them who had escaped slavery. Um, uh, others. Um, who had been had been free, but were, were escaping kind of the, you know, the economic and and physical and racist terrorism, you know, of the South of that period. So, and so particularly after the war, the the black population started to grow, and so there were lots of poor black people in Philadelphia. And and many of these, because of their, you know, considered their country ways or whatever, uh, were scorned by, you know, by native black Philadelphians. And so much of her work in the community was around bridging that gap. Okay, and she really emphasized again in everything she did in her teaching, in her, um, in her community uh, work in the. She gave lots of lectures in the community, um, and she didn't just give lectures to, the, you know, to the, the fancy ladies' club. She went wherever she was asked to give lectures. She wrote for the Christian Recorder, which in that period was probably the, the uh, most widely circulated African-American newspaper in the country. It was the, the uh, organ of the African-American Episcopal Church. But it was, um, uh, as she reminded folks, it wasn't just an AME newspaper. It was a black newspaper. And people all over the country in tiny little towns in the south, uh, a lot of times the only uh, newspaper that they got, or certainly the only one that had news of black people in it, was the AME Christian Recorder. So in all of these avenues, in you know, in writing for the Christian recorder, in doing lectures, um in the community, in the way that she ran the school, she always emphasized that idea that um that wisdom and education are not necessarily the same thing. Okay. And she really pushed her teachers to understand the need to respect the children, and their parents. Now, a lot of um, the things that she wrote, again, if you read her book, a lot of her advice about teaching sounds a whole lot like what uh, we now describe as progressive education or child-centered education. She was not one of those mean old school teachers who believed, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child kind of thing. She believed in kindness. The teachers should be kind and gentle, and and that if children weren't learning, that more often than not it was because of the teaching that was going on, not because there was something wrong with the children.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's so a very she was, uh, interesting she was point there. Extremely
1: radical for her time in terms of the way that she thought about teaching and learning and about connection to the community.
0: Yeah, sounds like um, she was indeed an educator. Which uh, I believe means to bring bring forth, I believe, where a lot of so-called teachers and learning institutions are more interested in indoctrination, putting Mm -hmm. in rather Mm -hmm. than bringing forth. Uh, Speaking of teaching, and you are a professor, tell us a little bit about you. Where do you teach? What subjects Uh, do you teach?
1: um uh, for the last 6 years I was on the faculty of the University of Colorado um in Boulder. I'm no longer at CU Boulder and in fact my you know my intention is to change um to shift careers a little bit. I'm in the process of um of hopefully relocating soon. Um and in that interim, I'm actually only teaching one course right now. I'm not on any faculty, but I am teaching a course as a guest lecturer at the University of Colorado in Denver. And my um, um, my field is history of education, and with a specific focus on segregated African American education in the late 19th and early 20th century. And in the you know in the the work that I do. What I'm particularly interested in, um, and Fannie jackson Coppin is a wonderful example of that, is uh, the ways in which um, our communities, particularly um, in the segregated South, okay, um, saw education as central to every other kinds of activism. Political activism, religious activism, cultural activism, social activism, all of it had education at its heart and um one of the the things that i always say is that that um that folks in our communities you know in that period um they didn't make those kinds of distinctions that this is political activism or this is uh, education activism they saw all of it as god's work okay and there's a, you know, there's there's lots of evidence to support, you know, that assertion. Um that um that again, Fanny Jackson Coppin's work at, um if you you know, read some more about her you'll see that she was very active in the AME church and in fact, uh married um uh, um late in life married uh Bishop Levi uh Coppin. That's where her you know, where the name Coppin came from for her. Um and the AME church played um, a, a significant role all over the country, but particularly in the South, in the, not only the creation of schools, but also involving themselves in um, in politics at the local and state level so that uh, public education could be created in the southern states because prior to the Civil War, Very few southern states had any, you know, any really viable public education system, and certainly not public education for African Americans. So uh, the AME Church got very active in pushing its membership to vote, to run for office, to be involved in the politics of the community so that they could pass and, you know, and implement uh, laws having to do with black education.
0: Mm -hmm. They were also involved in the Underground Railroad. Very yes.
1: Yeah. yes. Okay. And um and there were other churches involved in you know in the effort to create public education too. I I you know, I single out the AME church because of the you know, the really important uh role that they played in so many places, but they weren't the only ones. The um uh, the uh, black Baptists were very involved in the creation of public education um other denominations you know to to lesser extents were also involved and one of the reasons i think is so important for us to know this history because now uh, with public education under attack okay that all the you know the and you know as as much as i love and support our president okay um i am um extremely critical of the devastating education policies that are coming out of his administration the things like charters and vouchers and uh, and all the elements of no child left behind and race to the top and race to the top is an, is an obama initiative but all of those things have at their heart um the basically the dismantling of public education and the privatization of public education. And so I think it's important for us to look back at our history and see the ways that we engaged as a community around supporting public education and making sure that we were doing everything we possibly could to make sure that resources were coming into, you know, to our communities even if we had to create those resources ourselves to try to demand the kinds of of um of equitable resources that we needed in order to to keep public education for African-American children alive and flourishing.
0: You know, uh, speaking of charter schools, homeschooling, and what have you, and those initiatives, how important do you think charter schools might be if states such as Texas are moving to change their educational systems I'm uh, not calling slavery slavery anymore that it was an entrepreneur uh program.
1: that mm-hmm. that the, the, um, Texas did change its um its standards and the social c- so the social studies standards in particular are atrocious. That particular one about, um, about calling slavery um, entrepreneurship, that one actually is not true. That one came from a, from a satirical website. Okay, it was written, you know, sort of as a joke, but it got picked up on social media and got repeated so often that people think that's true. Now that particular one is not true, but there are lots of other things that did happen uh, in, with the uh, the change in the, in the Texas social studies um, standards that um, that are almost as bad. Okay, um, and so so we need to be aware of this stuff. Now, um, can when single, when I talk. To, can you when single I talk to, one? Pardon, I'm sorry.
0: Can you single something out that Texas did change?
1: Uh, well, one example that you know that comes to mind is that um, they wanted Thomas Jefferson taken out, okay, because um, because some Texans uh, on the school board didn't think that he was Christian enough. Um, that they um, um, that they uh, wanted. Um, uh, and I'm sorry that I'm going blank on this at the moment. No, okay. um, and, uh, they, um, they the wanted problem. equal time given to um, what they considered a balanced approach given to to really conservative groups. They wanted to rewrite history to make Joe McCarthy, you know, a good guy. And to say he was actually right. Uh, There's actually a long list of things, and a a lot of the changes that they made are are subtle, that they just changed the wording here and there. So that example about uh, about changing the way that they talked about slavery, even though it isn't true, It actually it it is a factual, but it has is as um, as um, Stephen Colbert would say is truthy, that they're doing similar kinds of things where they just shift the language a little bit so that things that were really harsh like slavery, you know, like like uh, white terrorism, that all of those things, so that they don't sound as harsh, so that the teachers can't talk about you know that kind of uh, racial terrorism, for instance. So it's just little subtle changes in the language in some places. So it's not just the things that were taken out or changed, but even just the, the way that the things that were left in, the way that the textbooks now talk about them. And one of the reasons it matters what happens in Texas is because, because Texas is such a large state, and because uh, Texas, Texas does have state adopted textbooks, that they're the largest purchaser of textbooks in the country. And so, and because textbooks are very expensive to produce, um, if Texas isn't buying them, then the textbook companies aren't producing them. So the textbooks that end up being sold in other states uh, pretty much have to be uh, to to meet the Texas standards. Uh, Three states in the country: California, Florida. And and Texas pretty much control what goes into the textbooks that that are that are sold around the country. So it matters, you know, even if you are not not in Texas.
0: Yeah, that's scary. That is scary. You no, know, the Texans must not be familiar with Thomas Jefferson and the uh, the Jefferson Bible. Mm-hmm. Thomas yeah, Jefferson. And,
1: well, well, one of the one of the things that um, that the you know that the conservative right you know, likes to talk about a lot is about this nation being founded as a Christian nation and the founders being, you know, being Christians. And that's actually not true. Um, That's why Thomas Jefferson, you know, got ousted because he was a deist. And most of the founding fathers were. They were not Christians.
0: Okay. I have a copy of the Jefferson Bible. Wherein Jefferson stated that he considered himself a disciple of the doctrine of Jesus Christ.
1: Okay, uh, That's which
0: how he was, not,
1: was not exactly the same thing. He was very critical of Christianity. Um, in well, fact, was, in was, what he did with Jef- what he did with the Jefferson Bible was he thought that that the the, um, the King James Bible, as we know it, was very inaccurate, um, and so he basically cut and pasted. And rearranged it in a way that he thought made more sense.
0: Okay. Okay. okay, and that's how it got its name, the Jefferson Bible.
1: Yeah, <laughs> because he was very critical of Christianity. He thought that the doctrine of Christianity,
0: that, but the way it was practiced, he thought that the doctrine of,
1: of Jesus had been subverted, and he thought that the you know that the King James Bible was was not uh, was actually not a good document. But actually, I'd like us to get back to actually to you know to the issues around education. Um, okay. That um, that that earlier, you know, we began talking about charters, and and um, one of the things that I always say is that when it comes to charters, my philosophy is, um, 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 don't hate the player, but do we do need to have a serious critique of the game? Okay. And um, and you know and the the initial idea behind charters decades ago was very different from what we're seeing enacted uh, right now as part of uh, the current administrator's education reform uh, initiative. And charters, and you know, and and let me back up and say there are a number of charters, a small number of charters, for whom I have the utmost respect, wish them well, you know, in fact uh, support them, think they're doing tremendous work, but the vast majority of charters basically come down to, to private schools operated at public expense. And I think the charter movement is undermining uh, public education in a way that will leave the vast majority of black children out in the cold okay? and eventually will lead to the dismantling of public education. And there is nothing magical about charters. Uh, that the, the most reliable study of charters that was done a few years ago uh, by an institution out of out of Stanford uh, determined that uh, that a handful of, of charters, I think it was about 17% of, of charters, um, perform. Um, and 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 let me back up and say, when we talk about performance, we're talking about a very narrow range of criteria to mostly test scores, which is a whole other conversation. But anyway, about 17% of of charters um, uh, uh, perform better, slightly better, than comparable um, regular public schools. But over 40% of charters perform way worse than public schools, and those in the middle are pretty much the same. So there's nothing there's nothing um you know to say that charters are actually going to improve public education, but there's a whole lot of stuff that raises questions about um the ways in which charters and the charter movement, not individual charter schools but the charter movement um is um dismantling public education okay.
0: um is there anything uh, we need to know about um uh, Lincoln University out of Pennsylvania?
1: I'm not an expert on, on Lincoln, so there probably is a lot of stuff that we need to know about them. <laughs> Each one of these HBCUs has has incredible um um history and all of them fought hard to be to become the institutions that they became. And one of the child and let me say one more thing and this connects back to Fannie Jackson Cotton. Um the Institute for Colored Youth which you know eventually became uh, first a high school, uh, a high school and normal school, and then eventually became a college. You know, in the early um, 1900s, um, it started out as a classical school. I mean, they taught a classical curriculum. You know, the you know like I mentioned, Latin and Greek and and algebra and all of those things. And Fannie Jackson Coppin, remember her her um, great love for working people and her desire to work on behalf of the community. To um, um, she noted that the only place in Philadelphia that a black boy could learn a trade at the time was in the poorhouse or in the jail. And so she pushed to have um, to have vocational industrial arts programs added to the um, to the curriculum uh in the Institute for Colored Youth and she um and and so she wanted things like you know carpentry and sewing and all of that but she also really was pushing for things that we you know now would probably consider to be pre-med for instance uh she didn't want uh to, to just offer courses that would that would uh, would lead to a trade, although she saw that as really important. But she wanted, she thought of trades in a much more important way. You know, so instead of you know uh, the the vocational school, think of of kind of the of the uh, MIT, for instance. That's yeah. A- that's in many ways a vocational school but at its, as its you know, at its highest heights you know and so that's the kind of uh that's the way of what she was thinking not just limiting it to the trades but uh but kind of higher technical and vocational skills now at the time that she's pushing this this was an era when uh booker t washington reigned and the idea of industrial education which basically translated to manual labor, not even skilled um, trades, but just manual labor. That that was the idea that reigned, and and um, and so schools that really were pushing the idea, as Fannie Jackson Coppin did, that the schoolroom and the workroom should should exist together. That, there should be, um, that we should be studying, you know, higher math and, and Greek and Latin and all those things at the same time as we we're studying carpentry or pre-med. Okay. Um, that was the kiss of death for schools. So many, so many of those schools struggled in that period uh, to get support and get funding because the, uh, the northern philanthropists who pretty much controlled southern education, and the vast majority of these HBCUs uh, are in the south, so um, the the northern philanthropists who controlled black education and certainly held the purse strings uh, for those schools, they were not willing to even entertain the idea that the focus of um, of the curriculum in those schools should be liberal arts curriculum. And so a lot of careers were ruined, and you know, and schools made to toe the line uh, because of that doctrine. And so each of those stories, Lincoln, each of those schools, Lincoln and all the other 105 schools, all have a story to tell about uh, the struggles that they went through to, in the words of, you know, of, of some of the, the missionaries from an earlier uh, period, they said, uh, Our mission is to build men. Okay. And those were the ones who were resisting the idea of the manual. Um, uh the manual curriculum that came out of uh Booker T Washington's Tuskegee machine okay uh but all of them fought and you know fought and paid dearly that took that stance and um and Booker T Washington himself by the time he died and i think it was 1915 that he died a few years before he died even he had begun to admit that um that it was not the right path um there's a much more complicated kind of discussion about Booker T. Washington. He was a very complicated man with lots of contradictions. At the same time that he's standing on stage telling coon jokes, he's secretly funding desegregation cases and lots of other, you know, contradictions like that. But you know, but you know, looking back, you know, in retrospect, um, it's it seems clear that he was doing what he thought was the only thing that would actually succeed. That he thought that white America was not ready, and especially Southern white America, was not ready for kind of a progressive approach to black education. And so he was going kind of with half the loaf um instead of none. But anyway, so Lincoln and and all of the other schools, that they were fighting for to you know, to to actually be real colleges. In nineteen fifteen there was only one school, one HBCU in the country that was actually teaching you know a college level liberal arts curriculum and that was uh what's now Florida A&M University that the rest of them had been so uh constricted by um uh, by the northern uh, white philanthropists uh that they weren't able to um to do that and again FAMU the president of FAMU paid a high price for um But his name was Nathan Young. Um, Dr. Nathan Young paid a high price for really resisting uh, and and making FAMU uh, uh, an academically rigorous school. And it took several decades for uh, for most of the HBCUs to be able to get to that point where they could do that because because of who held the purse strings. You know, you made a comment about.
0: um... Jackson early on um, did away with subscription or fees to attend mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Institute for Colored Youth. Was
1: mm-hmm. she able
0: to get funding from the AMA to make up um, for that revenue?
1: Um, the money came from a lot of sources, but she really emphasized the community supporting the school. Um, that one of the things that they did was, was encourage the children voluntarily to contribute a penny a week you know, into various uh, uh, clubs around the school, and that money went to support different organizations. She asked the African-American community in Philadelphia to contribute $1, just $1, Uh, To the school now, one dollar, you know, in in 1900 was, you know, it it wasn't anything to sneeze at. It was some money, but it was still enough that working people, that it was low enough that that working people and poor people could scratch out a dollar to contribute to it. And so a lot of the support came from the community. There were a number of benefactors. I mentioned earlier that um, that there were uh, a number of wealthy families in Philadelphia in the 1800s and so there were um there were benefactors who who um either contributed significant sums to the school or uh, or left money in their wills um so the so a great deal of the support even though the school had initially was not founded by or um or uh, financially supported by the African American community under her leadership that changed Okay, so that the, that uh, much of the support for the community really did come, I mean, much of the support for the school really did come from the community because of her efforts to help the school, have help the community uh, feel a sense of ownership of the institution.
0: Okay. Um, you're listening to the guest of Freedom. I'm your host, Preston Washington. My guest is Professor Linda Mazel. We've been talking about historically black colleges and universities, along with uh, Fannie Jackson Compton, early educator, and uh, the professor is bringing us up to date on a number of subjects, uh, including um, charter education here in the United States, uh, the real deal on the Texas school books, um, the real deal about HBCUs, a little bit about Thomas Jefferson and uh, why the Texans don't like him and what he really believed in, et cetera. And, uh, Professor, if people wanted to, our listeners wanted to contact you, how would they do that? Um, they do
1: that? Well, the easiest way is actually on Facebook. <laughs> I I am on Facebook and um, and really enjoy engaging in conversations in that way. I um can also send you contact information that you can post on on the website
0: okay, great and uh, do you have any events coming up that we should know about doing any any presentations you're in the Colorado area?
1: I am in the Colorado area, and um, actually nothing um and, and nothing that I'm aware of is coming up in the immediate future, but I will keep you posted,
0: okay. And uh you mentioned uh there might be other books, uh, what other people had to say about Fanny Jackson Coppin, In addition to her book, mm-hmm. uh, this is school life and mm-hmm. uh hands on teaching. What other mm-hmm. books might we look to?
1: I think the the best source, um, as I mentioned earlier is Doctor Linda Marie Perkins. Linda Marie um, Perkins. Linda Marie Perkins. And um and she published several articles as well as her dissertation on Fannie Jackson Coppin. Okay. Um and um the um at and I wanna say it's at Coppin State, I may have to go back and correct my state myself. But uh but I believe at Coppin State that um uh, that they've started an an institution and again, forgive me, I'm blanking on the name of it. Um um, an institute that focuses on, on women's studies, on African American women's studies, uh, that has, you know, um, lots of material and there, you know, a number of, of um, you know, short, really accessible, like videos that are online. And uh, I will, I can forward all this information if you, you know, if you'd like to post it on the website. Uh, Thank Dr. You. Perkins' work is you know is scholarly is scholarly work but there are lots of um and put that also encourage folks to read the scholarly work okay uh, but um but they're also you know kind of popular uh sites with with um with short biographies of fanny jackson Coppin. and you know and she' she's somebody that we all need to know and um that I often work with with um with um, young teachers or students who are, you know, are studying to become teachers. And most of them have never heard of them, of, of Fannie Jackson Coppin. And when I talk about her, they say, how can we be in a school of education? How can we be a teacher and not have ever heard of this woman? Okay. And so not only do teachers need to know about her, but all of us need to know about her because she created this amazing legacy of her work and of her vision for us that has a lot to teach us right now in 2013.
0: Well, I'm so glad that you uh, joined us to share uh, Fannie Jackson Coppin. I was certainly not aware of her, but I am now, and I'm sure our listeners are. And uh, I think we're going to have to have you back, uh, Professor.
1: I will Uh, look forward to that.
0: And think of some subjects to talk on, and I'm sure that Probably anything we pick out, you'll be able to talk <laughs> on. Uh, but the clock on the wall is telling me that we're running out of time here. And um, I want to remind our listeners that you've been listening to The Gifts of Freedom. And uh, this show will be archived and available uh, by way of iTunes at com. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. I'm out of Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, I want to say good night to our guest. Linda good night. Michael. Thank you I for having good And good night, everyone. Thank you.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woo A hand-clapper, a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then the. Build-